0: Well, we have been in the book of Matthew for quite a long time, and uh, we're doing a little mini-series in the book of Matthew that starts today, titled The 11th Hour, The Return of King Jesus. We are looking at uh, the world today, and even as we just prayed for Memorial Day, oh, tensions heating up in the world. How many of you have been following what's going on in Israel with Hamas? And uh, incredible tension there, and a a momentary ceasefire. Uh, uh, Hamas, uh, Islam, uh, launching over 4,000 rockets into Israel in the last uh, just couple of weeks. And Israel defending themselves and then coming back and pounding Hamas and uh, destroying their tunnels and everything else. And, and there's tension in the world. And uh, we see all things moving in a, you know, towards a direction. And indeed, the days we're living in are indeed the 11th hour before the return of King Jesus. And so a really timely series that we're going to jump into uh, today we 're going to jump into the beginning of it, and we 'll get enough to get our, our feet wet, uh, but I would encourage you read ahead we 're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 24 today. and uh, this is the 11th hour, the Return of King Jesus, part one. And uh, here 's uh, uh, here's the theme, by the way, uh, kind of setting the stage. Um, did you guys all get a Bible? Everybody, anybody need a Bible? I know the usher just passed them out, but I'd announce it. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand right now. We'll still get you one. Uh, Everybody good? Um, So here's the the setting, right? Uh, We're moving into a new section in Matthew 24. It's called the Olivet Discourse. It's called that because they were on the Temple Mount. They came down, and right down across the Kidron Valley... Only about a half a mile down the Kidron Valley, across the Kidron Valley, Jesus and the disciples go to the Mount of Olives. And all of this teaching happens there from the Mount of Olives. And uh, it's an important, really important discourse. It's called the Olivet Discourse. And Jesus is uh, teaching about the theme of what we're going to be looking about is Jesus' return at the end of this present age. This world is not going to go on as we know it forever. Aren't you glad? Uh, I am. I am so glad. Uh, Sometimes I look at the things in the world and I just get discouraged, man. You watch the news and if you study too much about what's going on in the world, it can be depressing at times. Uh, But I love knowing that King Jesus is coming back. And there's a a song, it says, uh, and though the wrong, uh, this is my father's world, and let me never forget, that although the wrong seems oh so strong, he is the ruler yet. And uh, Jesus is coming back at the end of this present age, and do you know what he's coming back for? What's he coming back for? He's coming back to establish his millennial kingdom. A kingdom that was promised to Abraham and to the the Jewish people, to Israel from thousands of years ago. For 4,000 years now, this kingdom has been promised. Since 2006 BC, this kingdom has been promised. And Jesus is going to come back to stop and judge and, and bring to an end all the evil that is on the world and to establish a millennial kingdom where he will rule and reign physically, bodily, personally, tangibly. How else can I say it? He'll really be there ruling and reigning from Jerusalem the entire world under his sovereign control For a thousand years the millennial kingdom Uh, and chapter 24 begins to set this up Uh, all the nations of the world are going to be governed by Jesus and this is what the disciples were asking for all the time they expected this what was the question they were asking Jesus all the time are you now going to set up your kingdom why were they asking that question all the time Because that's what was promised in the Old Testament that the Messiah would do. They didn't make it up. All of of Israel was anxiously waiting for the Messiah to set up his kingdom. What they did not know is, we first needed to be cleansed of our sins. What good is a kingdom with no one in it? Right? And if we were were sinners, if we had to deal with our sin ourselves, none of us would be able to be in God's kingdom. We would all be separated from God. So Jesus came first to cleanse us of our sins, to give us his righteousness as a free gift to all who call upon him. If you're here today and Jesus isn't your savior, Jesus isn't your Lord, I want you to know you are dead in your sins. And you are going to hell Jesus punishes sin and all sin will be punished. You can either have it be punished on Jesus' shoulders or on your own. The choice is yours. And if you will just ask him, he will give you salvation and forgiveness of sin as a free gift and his righteousness imparted to you as a free gift. That is the beauty of the gospel. And you say, I don't understand. How can that be? Well, here's how it can be. That's what you were created for. God created you to have a relationship with you. It is his desire to forgive you of sin so that you might come into that relationship with him. And he gives it freely to all who ask. So the disciples were constantly asking, Jesus, are you going to set up your kingdom now? And was Jesus going to set up his kingdom now when they asked the question? Was he? No. Well, yes, but it was a spiritual kingdom, not a physical kingdom yet. And so Jesus has some teaching to do. Uh, When are you going to set up the kingdom? Uh, When are you going to do what you promised in the Old Testament, to have this millennial kingdom where you rule and reign from, from Israel? And in Matthew 24, Jesus finally answers that question. The question they've been asking over and over and over. And again, it was necessary because the disciples thought Jesus was going to set up his kingdom. And Jesus knew he was going to the cross in just two or three days. It's probably Tuesday right now. Maybe Wednesday. uh, We're not totally sure. We don't really know what happened on Wednesday. But this all of that discourse happened uh, probably on Tuesday. And he's going to go to the cross on Friday on just three days. And the disciples still think he's going to set up his kingdom. And so he's not. Uh, he's, he's going to the cross. He knows it. And so he gives them this instruction that they might uh, uh, not be confused when he goes to the cross. Um, it's important, as we before we jump into this, it's important as we read Matthew 24, these prophetic Uh, Words that Jesus is going to give us about the kingdom and about his coming again in the in the not only today, but in the weeks to come It is important that we take Jesus's words as simply and straightforward and as literal as we can there are a lot of commentators where if you start buying Bible commentaries and looking at them, they start making this stuff so incredibly complex. And in doing so, they don't take Jesus' words simply. They go, oh, it's allegory, it's figurative, all these things. And they start making it mean just these complex equations. And I want to remind you, Jesus' disciples were regular plain, simple, uneducated men. And Jesus was speaking to them in literal, plain, simple language. And it is my goal today to make this easily understandable for all just like Jesus did for his disciples. That's our goal today. Tell me how we do after the study. Um, but that's where we're going. And, uh, uh, you know, just to, again, uh, uh, I, think that, I think if the disciples would read all the commentaries on Matthew 24, uh, these common guys, they'd be baffled, right? Um, uh, there's a simple, so let's take it simply, let's take it straightforward and literal as best we can today. Uh, One question I'd like to answer before we get started is, why even study eschatology? Why even study this end times prophecy? Eschatology is end times prophecy. Why even study this stuff? Well, here's why. Because Jesus is coming again. And there is more written in the Bible on the return of Jesus than on any other subject, period. It must be important for us to know. Over 300 verses in your Bible on the return of Jesus. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, virtually every book in the Bible speaks on the return of Jesus. It is super important that we know it. And so may we not dismiss it. Uh, Jesus is coming again, a second coming. He came the first time in humility to save us. He's coming the second time in glory to judge the earth and to set up his kingdom where he will reign as king. And uh, so to that end, we open um, uh, and let's jump in to Matthew 24. Are you there? Yeah. Give me a big amen if you're all there. Yeah. Finger on the spot, ready to go. Uh, here's just this context. Here's what's happened. Palm Sunday just happened. You remember Palm Sunday? It just happened. Jesus rides in on a donkey and he weeps because he knows the praise is not from the heart. They're expecting a physical king to set up an earthly kingdom and he weeps. And he knows the same people that are praising him are going to say, Crucify him in just five days. And so he, he weeps. Uh, Monday after Palm Sunday, he, wait, he rides out of Jerusalem uh, uh on, uh, Sunday after Palm Sunday, just right outside into Bethany, stays in the house of Mary and, and, uh, Lazarus and, and on Monday morning, wakes up early with the disciples and comes back to the temple. And on the way to the temple, he sees a fig tree. And what does he do to the fig tree? Curses it. And we've studied this. It's a picture of what? Israel, the kingdom transfer, Uh, the Israel, the age of grace being taken off of Israel, and the age of grace being put on the Gentiles, on the church, and now uh, the church is the instrument Jesus uses uh, in uh, in this period right here, and then he rides into the temple, he overturns the tables and all that kind of stuff and all that has just happened, and now it's Tuesday. He's going to the cross in just three days, and he knows it, and he prepares the disciples for these things. So chapter 24, you're there, right? Uh, Well, now back up a few more verses. Uh, Go to verse 37 of 23 uh, to kind of set the the context. Uh, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Say it with me. But you were not willing wasn't that I wasn't willing, it's that you weren't willing. It was my heart's desire. And had they been willing, things would look different. There wouldn't be a church age, there would be a kingdom age, but they weren't willing. Uh, and so he says to them, verse 38, See, your house is left to you desolate. Your religion is going to be left to you bankrupt. Your temple is going to be left to you bankrupt. All of your your uh, you know religious activity is all going to be brought to nothing verse thirty nine for I say to you, you will see me no more you're going to be spiritually blind today. the Jews cannot see Jesus. The Bible tells us that there's spiritual blindness that has come upon them. Romans eleven says that blindness has happened in part into the nation Israel, not on on the entire but the biggest part. There's a remnant. Blindness has happened in part to the nation Israel until the fullness of the Jew, Gentiles has come in. Until, until Jesus is done with the Gentile church. And then uh, that blindness will be lifted at the end. So he says, you will see me no more. There's spiritual blindness that's come upon you. That was the, the, the whole point of the cursed fig tree. You'll see me no more until you say Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A messianic psalm from Psalm 118 about Jesus' return in glory. Right? And so that's what he sets up. Now, chapter 24. Then Jesus went and departed from the temple and his disciples... Excuse me. Jesus went and departed from the temple and his disciples came up to uh, to show him the buildings of the temple... Uh, again, Jesus goes out of the Temple Mount area, right over to the, uh, across the Kidron Valley, right over to the Mount of Olives. And there it's a great spot. You can just look across the Kidron Valley and you can see the Temple Mount and their glorious, beautiful temple and everything that's there. I've been there. I've stood on that spot. I can see it on my mind. It's amazing. And Jesus said, uh, said to them, do you see all these things? And I can see Jesus there in the Mount of Olives, right? And he goes, do you see all these things? And he you know, probably just brought his hand across like the entire Temple Mount. It's a huge area. Don't think of a little tiny. It's a huge area. You know, and the, the Solomon's Temple was glorious. He goes, do you see all these things? And they go, yeah. And look what he says to them. He says, I assuredly I say to you, not one stone Shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down, oh my gosh, how incredible what an just a, an unimaginable thing for Jesus to say! imagine going to the white House right and uh, you 're you're there you 're in d c and you see the the Lincoln Memorial, and you see you know just I mean, the, the white house all the stuff that 's there right, and imagine just brushing your hand across the entire town and say, not one of these things are going to remain. You'd be like, what the heck? Are you kidding me? And here we see Jesus just days before his, his crucifixion. He knows he's going to the cross. And here Jesus gives a radically outlandish prophecy. I mean, just crazy to think of, right? Right? The Jewish temple was spectacular. It was re- <clears throat> excuse me it was rebuilt uh, by King Herod. It was enlarged. Uh, Herod uh, was just uh, a master builder. I mean, he was a, a, a builder extraordinaire. If you go to Israel, you'll see some of the things he did. He built aqueducts and, and uh, stadiums and things. I mean, just amazing. And he wanted to really uh, make a name for himself. He wanted to win favor of all the Jewish people. And so he expanded the Temple Mount and he rebuilt the temple. You'll remember Solomon's temple was glorious, right? It was glorious, but it was completely destroyed by the Babylonians. And Zerubbabel goes back after the 70 years of captivity in Babylon, and he's sent by God back to rebuild the temple, but it was nothing compared to what Solomon's temple was. And those who remembered Solomon's temple, when they saw it, they cried and they wept. Like, hey, glad we have a temple. But they were, you know, it's nothing, you know, puny a little in comparison. Well, it got improved over the years. uh, uh, But uh, here Herod comes and he he just... builds it to the nines I mean he just really expands this thing expands the temple mount area and uh, rebuilds the temple enlarged it and he spared no cost Uh, King Herod began uh, building the temple in 21 BC 21 BC this work started what year are we talking about right now in our story about 33 AD right So 21 BC to 33 AD, how many years is that? 54 years. Not bad for 830. Hey, way to go. Uh, 54 years the construction has been happening on this temple. It'll go on for another 30 years after Jesus is crucified. So the work is still going on. Uh, Jesus, during this, this magnificent temple, the construction's going on, and he says, hey, do you see all this? The disciples are proud of it, right? They're like, hey, Jesus, do you see? I mean, don't we have an amazing temple? When are you going to rule from there, Jesus? When are you going to set up your kingdom and go put your throne in that temple, Jesus? And Jesus, hey, you see all these things? Not one stone will be left upon another. Crazy prophecy. I'm sure they thought, what the heck? I mean, how could it be? Uh, uh, this construction, I mean, it was, it was just amazing. It was a colossal project. Look at these stats, by the way. Herod kept 10,000 workmen employed building this temple. 10,000 for eight years. He employed 10,000 people for eight years to do work on this temple. You can imagine the scope of construction. Uh, I don't even think Caltrans has that many people working for it, Uh, even though it looks like it when you drive by and they're all standing there. Uh, The temple was stunningly beautiful in Jesus' day. Josephus would write, it it was whitewashed, beautiful stone, all overlaid with gold on top. Josephus would write, he's a historian from that day, a famous historian, it's great to read his works. He would write, when the sun would rise in Jerusalem, the temple would, sh- would shine so radiantly what it would re- reflect with the gold on the top and the whitewashed stone that it was like, like it was illuminated. And Josephus just writes of its beauty. It was one of the wonders of the world. Uh, Outside of the temple was Solomon's porch. Solomon's porch had 1.4 million square feet. I have an artist rendition for you of Solomon's porch on the screens. Uh, There's a... uh, Uh, artist rendition of Solomon's Porch that I think is pretty accurate it was incredibly ornate you can see the detail you can see all the Jewish people gathering there in Solomon's Porch again 1.4 million square feet it was uh, 1,562 feet long by 921 feet wide there were 160 of these giant columns right there each one of those columns was 67 feet tall They were all made out of one piece of stone. Can you imagine? That each column is one piece of stone, 60, 60 uh, um, excuse me, 37 feet tall. Uh, the, the temple was just incredibly beautiful. The temple was 100 feet tall, uh, 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 the temple itself. And again, 160 of these giant, uh, giant col- columns. All that to say it was inconceivable craftsmanship. The temple, uh, I couldn't, can't put a picture of it because there's nothing that will do it justice. If you go there today and you go to the Temple Mount, it is astonishing to look just at the Temple Mount, how glorious it is that was built by Herod and, and, uh, or added on to by Herod. Um, they quarried these stones. Uh, and they because of uh, Jewish law, all the stones had to be quarried off-site. The, the Temple Mount was too holy to have construction work going on you know, so they would quarry these stones off site uh, some of the stones on the temple mount are 67 feet long uh, 67 feet long 12 feet wide over 300 tons each I've seen them you walk in the temple mount they're quarried they fit right into the bedrock of the temple mount giant massive stones imagine a stone being from here all the way back one stone How did they move it there? And they fit in so tight. I mean, they're just, it's astonishing. It's astonishing. And for Jesus to make this prediction is just incredible. Herod's goal, by the way, uh, he said, I want to build a, a monument that outlasts the pyramids. That was Herod's goal when he did this temple project. He said, I want a building project that is so massive, so huge, so radical that my fame will go on forever and it outlasts the pyramids. Uh, That was his goal. Uh, Josephus, again, the historian, said the temple wanted nothing that the eye and the mind could desire. All the wealth and all the pomp and all the circumstance was there in the temple. Um, No person in their right mind would ever dream it could be destroyed. And Jesus here says, do you see all these things? I tell you, not one stone will be left upon another. For you historians, do you remember how this happened? How did this prophecy come to pass? This outlandish prophecy how did it come to pass it was the first jewish war between uh, the jews and the romans it started when 67 AD ultimately 1.1 million jews would be cr- would be killed 1.1 million jews ultimately all the jews would scatter all over the whole face of the earth to get out of Rome's empire, and to just you know travel everywhere to get out of Jerusalem to to save their lives, and what happened is, is uh, this war happened, and uh, uh, when the war started, Nero was the emperor. uh, Started in sixty seven, in sixty eight A D, Nero commits suicide. He went mad. He commits suicide, and uh, Titus. Flavius, uh, Vesp- Titus Flavius Vespasian uh, became the new emperor after Nero. And uh, the order was given by Nero, hey, uh, to Titus, who was the general at that time, to Vespasian, who was the general at the time, he said, hey, control the Jews, but do not harm the temple. Nero dies... Vespasian becomes the new emperor. He takes uh, Nero's spot. And his son, Titus, becomes the general of the Roman army. And Titus then gets control of everything and tries to get control, but all the Jews started flocking to the temple for safety, to get away from the Romans. And there were so many Jews in the temple that a soldier threw in a burning log into the temple to flush all the Jews out. And the temple caught on fire. And they tried to stop it, but it couldn't be stopped. The temple catches on fire. Hundreds of thousands of Jews die. So many Jews die when the temple catches on fire that Josephus writes that the blood of the Jews that died started pouring out of the temple mount and down the temple steps like a river. Blood was flowing and tons and tons of Jews died in that destruction and the temple was burnt and all the gold in the temple, the temple gets, gets destroyed and all the gold melted and fell in between the cracks of all the rocks And guess what happened? All the scavengers came in to get the gold, and they turned every single stone upside down to get the gold out of it, and there was nothing left, not even one stone upon another. It all happened exactly as Jesus said, which is just incredible, just incredible. Jesus gave a radically outlandish prophecy and Jesus' inconceivable prophecy was fulfilled literally exactly as he said. Incredible to look at. And for the last two, nearly 2,000 years now, right, since 70 A.D., the Jewish temple has never been rebuilt. That in itself is amazing. And the Jews are waiting to this day for the temple to be rebuilt. How many of you have ever, ever heard of the wailing wall? And how many of you have ever seen the Hasidic Jews there on the side of the wailing wall? And what are they doing on the side of the wailing wall? They're praying. They get their prayers, they write them on paper, and they stick them into the cracks of the wailing wall. You know what the wailing wall is? What are they praying for? What are they writing on that paper? What are they putting in there? You know what they're praying? That the Messiah would come and that they would rebuild their temple. What they're praying is that the temple would be restored so their worship of of Yahweh could be restored and they're there and they're praying. You know, they pray like this and they, you know, they, that's how they pray with all their soul, with all their strength, with all their might. They take that literally and they pray that way. And uh, that's what they're doing at the Wailing Wall. They're praying. Uh, What is on top of the Temple Mount today? The Dome of the Rock and the Al-Ausk Mosque. very typical of Islamic culture, they try to destroy Jewish artifacts and they try to establish new Islamic artifacts on top of Jewish things to change history. And uh, that's what's happened. And that's, what, that's why all this turmoil in the Middle East today, it's all over this Temple Mount. And uh, uh, even though uh, in... Um, 67. Uh, the Jews regained, you know, all the territory of Israel. Um, uh, they still let the Arabs and the Muslims have control of the Temple Mount just to stop World War World War III from from uh, breaking out. So, uh, hopefully, that's not too much history, and you're not sleeping, and you're with me. But fascinating stuff. All that to say, Jesus's inconceivable prophecy was fulfilled literally. And it bears a mute testimony today of two things to us. When you go and you see that there's no temple there and that the temple was destroyed exactly as Jesus said, it tells us two things. Number one, it tells us the surety of God's word. God's word can be trusted. This glorious temple was the world's largest, most beautiful to the world's largest religion, it was imagine the, the the world's largest religion having their their epicenter destroyed. I mean, it would it's just unheard of. It was one of the wonders of the world, and it was demolished just as Jesus said. We can trust God's word. When God says something, it is solid, it is sure, it is certain, and it will come to pass. And I want you to know, maybe you're going through hardships, maybe you're wondering, God, where are you? Maybe you're a parent and you've got a child going crazy right now, a teenager, and you're wondering, God, where are you? Hey, you keep praying and you keep teaching and you keep... uh, reminding them of the word of God and speaking truth into their life. Here's why. Because God's word will not be broken. It can be trusted. It is sure. It is proven. Uh, Maybe you're single and you're looking for a spouse and you're wondering, Lord, how long before I get a wife, man? Why can't I find a godly girl? Why can't I find a godly man? How long? Hey, you just stay in the center of God's word. Build your life on it, and I promise you, God's word can be tr- <clears throat> can be trusted. He will bring it to pass. Um, we can build our life on it. We must build our life on it. By the way, prophecy is so powerful. One of the things it did for me uh, when I uh, was really young in my faith, and I was realizing the cost of discipleship. I was realizing that hey. It's not just you go to heaven. No, no, no. Jesus wants my life. Well, man, I don't know if I want to give him my life. I mean, uh, why would I do that? And I started, I mean, how do I know all this is real? And how do I know all this is right? And really, I mean, I started reading and studying prophecy. And when I started uh, realizing the things that were prophesied from thousands of years ago, that are being fulfilled literally exactly as they said they would oh it just strengthened my faith incredibly and it makes me know that hey this uh, there's more to this life than meets the eye and uh, again uh, this is my father's world and let me never forget that although the wrong seems oh so strong uh, he is the ruler yet right um, And so we must build our life on it. Uh, This inconceivable prophecy being fulfilled shows us the surety of God's word. And may I remind us some things that the Bible says. I want to remind us of three things that the Bible says that are just sure. It's going to happen. Uh, The Bible teaches it all through Scripture. Uh, Number one, God will judge all sin all sin is going to be judged. There is a right and a wrong. There are absolutes. And in this world where everything seems to be gray, where there's 500, not 50, 500 shades of gray, and they're all perverse. In this world where everything is gray, may I remind us there is right and there is wrong. There is black and there is white. There are absolutes. And God will judge all sin. People will go to hell. Hell is eternal. And we ought to fear God. He has the power to save us. And he has the power to condemn us to hell. Uh, There is a right and wrong. May we hold on to that. The Bible is very clear. And God's word will be fulfilled. Second things the Bible tells uh, over and over and over is that Jesus saves all who come to him in truth. He is not hard to please. He is not an impossible taskmaster. And you don't have to swim to the depths of the ocean to earn your salvation. You simply have to come to him and say, Lord, please forgive me. I am a sinner. I need to be forgiven. I need my sin taken off of my back, and I need the punishment of my sin to be put on your back, Jesus. I need you to save me. And the Bible says that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Those who call upon him in spirit and in truth. Not in pretense, not in a whim, but in spirit and truth, all who call upon him will be saved. Uh, sin is real, and salvation is real, and heaven is real, and we must tell others about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, you have a job to do. You have a mission. It's why we called it the mission church. There is a mission field. People out there are lost and dying and hurting, and you have the cure for cancer. Go give it to the world. Go give it to the world. And if you have fallen asleep in your Christianity, may I wake you up this morning and say, do not neglect the calling that is on your life. There's a job to do. And uh, tell your friends, tell your coworkers, tell your neighbors, tell your family about Jesus. Number one, God will judge all sin. Number two, Jesus saves all who come to him in truth. Number three, Jesus is coming again, as we've already discussed. Jesus is coming again. He's going to come again to crush all sin and rebellion. He's going to come again to crush all governments that are wicked. And he is going to establish a righteous government. Every Christmas we're reminded of this, right? Uh, He is coming and the government shall be on his shoulders. He is going to rule and reign on the earth and bring righteousness to the earth. He is going to establish his kingdom in Israel as he promised to the Jews, as he promised to Abraham. He is going to keep his word and his covenant. He will establish his kingdom in Israel. Israel was scattered from 70 A.D. to 1948. We're watching God fulfill his promise already. 1948, at the Jews' weakest time, uh, he restores them and he brings them back into their homeland after six million Jews are wiped out in the Holocaust. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. I'll give you a nation now at your very weakest hour. And they become a nation, and look what's happened Man, just amazing to see them regathering and the strength that they're, they're just amazing, amazing. And it's all the precursor of what, what Jesus is going to do to come back and establish his kingdom on earth. Um, it will happen. God's word is certain. It can be trusted. It never fails. And we would be wise to build our lives on it. Amen? I mentioned there are two things that Jesus' inconceivable prophecy uh, being fulfilled literally shows us. One is the surety of God's words we just covered, and secondly, it shows us the fading and transitory aspect of worldly glory. Herod's temple, Solomon's temple that that Herod rebuilt, uh, would have been... Billions and billions and billions of dollars worth of resources. It was, you know, just, it was the glory of all, all buildings. Uh, Josephus says, if you've never seen, no, excuse me, the rabbis of, of that day said, if you've never, uh, let me, well, that's not what they said. They said, you've never seen a building until you've seen the temple. It was just that glorious, and here it's reduced to nothing, and it just shows us the fading transitory aspect of worldly glory. Uh, The wealth and the pomp of this world that look like they're indestructible, that look like they will remain forever, that look like insurmountable pillars that could never be destroyed, all of it will quickly fade away and perish, but the word of God will remain forever. Forever. It is, it's hard sometimes, isn't it? We see all the wealth of the world. We see all the sin uh, of the world being promoted. And, and we see sinners prospering. And, and we wonder, God, what the heck? Where are you in all this? Hey, may I remind us, these things are transitory. These things won't last. The glory of the world but this will last forever. This is a foundation that cannot be broken. And uh, so important we remember it. Uh, I have a quote for you by John Calvin, the, the great reformer, uh, on the screens. Let me hear you read this out loud. Uh, speaking of the destruction of the temples, what he's writing about. Read with me if you will. It ought to correct the vanity of our senses which too eagerly follow pomp and luxury and pleasure. Calvin speaking on the destruction of the temple and Jesus' words here says, Hey, look, it ought to correct the vanity of our senses that are always hungering for the materialism of this world. May it stand as a mute reminder of the folly of that. And so we have to ask ourselves what foundation are we building our life upon this morning? The temporal or the eternal? The secular world views or biblical truth? Which one are you believing? Which one are you embracing? What are you holding on to? The lordship of self or the lordship of Jesus Christ? Jesus says you can build your house on two different foundations. You can build your house on the sand. The ways of the world or you can build your house on a rock, Jesus Christ, the solid foundation that'll never perish. And we have to be wise, right? It's tempting at times to, to build on a, uh, a different foundation, the easy foundation, the wealth and you know all the stuff of the world. So imagine how shocked the disciples were when they heard these words. Imagine how confused they were. How could this temple be destroyed? How could this ever possibly happen? Look what question they asked Jesus, verse 3, after he tells them this glorious building is going to be destroyed. Uh, verse 3, are you there with me? Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came, that's where we get the name, the Olivet Discourse, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? When is this going to happen? How could this possibly be? The disciples thought, in order for this temple to be destroyed, it would have to be the end of the world. They literally thought, for this to happen, it's got to be the end of the world, right? When will this be? And what will the sign of your coming be, and the end of the age? Do you see what's happening? They're saying, hey, Jesus, uh, this this is so inconceivable, man. it's, It's... are you going to destroy the world right now? Is this going to be the end of the age? Is this going to be the end of time? And here we see what Jesus does. Jesus tells them, hey, it's going to be a while before I come back. It's not the end of the age. And there's going to be some time that passes first. Look at how he answers them. Jesus answered and he says to them, take heed that no one deceives you. Tell them we're all good. Uh, take heed. What does take heed mean? Take heed. What does it mean? It means be extra careful. Be extra careful. When you're walking near the edge of a cliff, you take heed. When you're on a, on a shaky, you take heed. And Jesus says, hey, be careful. And then what does he say after that? Take heed and what? that no one deceives you. Take heed that no one deceives you. For many are going to come in my name saying I am the Christ and they will deceive many. Uh, Look at Wikipedia, by the way, and do a search on how many people have claimed to be Jesus Christ. It is so long. There's like countless names of people who have come. Many will come in my name saying I am the Christ and they're going to deceive many and you will hear of wars and rumor of wars but see that you're not troubled for all these things must come to pass and read these next words but read them say it again the disciples came to Jesus saying are you kidding me these temples are going to be destroyed that must be the end of the world and Jesus gives two instructions number one he says do not be duped number two the end is not yet Don't be duped, and the end is not yet. Don't let anyone trick you, the end is not yet. So many people have been duped by religious leaders and their overzealous imaginations that the end of the world is coming tomorrow. Every time there's a war or an earthquake or a new technology, people will go, Oh, it's the mark of the beast. It's the end of the world. And there'll be some religious leader there to fuel their fire, to draw attention to himself, to get his own following. Uh, We've seen it in history over and over and over. I remember, I don't remember, but I'm told when the social security number came out, guess what people thought that was? The mark of the beast. And then credit cards came out. And guess what people said? Oh, it's the mark of the beast. And now Apple Pay comes out, and everybody says, it's the mark of the beast. And now the Corona vaccine comes out, and everybody says, it's not the mark of the beast. It's not. It's not. The coronavirus is not the mark of the beast. If you want to get it, fine. If you don't want to get it, fine. But let's not be confused. It's not the mark of the beast, right? See that you're not duped. The end is not yet. Don't be deceived. Jesus is telling us these things are, uh, are you know, are, are going to come. There's going to be wars. There's going to be different things. Uh, and there's always going to be some zealous religious leader to fuel their fire. I want to tell you, church, I want to just remind all of us, be careful, beware of putting tinfoil on your head. Do you understand? Beware of putting tinfoil on your head. Do you're with me? Do you know what that means? Yeah? Uh, it's, it's crazy, right? Uh, a lot of people have done it. I remember in 1988, there was a book that came out 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988. And people sold their houses and bracked up tons of debt and thought, oh, I'll never have to pay my bills. This is going to be awesome. Jesus is going to rapture us in 1988. That's crazy thinking, right? Crazy thinking. I'm going to rack up a bunch of debt so I can get raptured and leave it with someone else. Well, what a That's Christian. Yeah. Uh, crazy things. Hey, don't be duped. Beware of getting so wrapped up in eschatology that you begin to worship eschatology in times, events and prophecies instead of who? Jesus, Jesus the Lord of eschatology, right? be careful that you don't become more passionate about prophecy than you do evangelism you want to talk about end times events all the time but are you living for the gospel are you saving people are you bringing people to Jesus I see some people they get so caught up in prophecy that's all they can talk about and people look at them and they go you're weird you're just weird Be careful, right? Jesus is saying, don't be duped. The end is not yet. Uh, We shouldn't be more passionate about uh, prophecy than we are about Jesus. We shouldn't be more uh, passionate about the rapture than we are repentance. It's dangerous. And we don't want to go that path. Beware of end times, overzealous mentalities. Um, This is nothing new, by the way. It's been going on for a long time. In the book of Amos, Amos writes about it. Uh, look what he says. It's on your screens. This is Amos 5.18. Uh, the, the, the return of the, the day of the Lord means the day that Jesus comes back. Um, let me hear you read this out loud. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Wait, let's, let's stop there. That's crazy that God would say that. This is God's words. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. He's speaking to eschatology fanatics. He's speaking to prophecy guys who are just nothing about prophecy 24-7. He says, woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Let's go on. Let's finish reading it. For what good is the day of the Lord to you? It will be darkness and not light. It will be as though a man fled from a lion and a bear met him. Hold that slide right there say, He's saying, hey, listen, it's not that the day of the Lord isn't coming. What does he say about it? The day of the Lord is coming, but it's not going to be a blessing for you. It's not going to be light for you. It's going to be what for you? It's going to be judgment for you. You see, our relationship with Jesus, our relationship with God, our fellowship with God has to be what's the what's most important to us. We can even put prophecy above God, and that is a big mistake. And it, it may seem religious, but it's not wise, and Jesus wants it has to be Lord of all. Let's go on and read what the rest of the verse says. Uh, Keep reading with me. Or as though he went into a house, leaned his hand on a wall, and a serpent bit him. What does that mean? It's like, oh, man, they were chasing me. I made it. Puts his hand on the wall, taking a rest, and a snake comes and bites him. Oh, you thought you were resting in something, but it turned out to be judgment is the picture. Um, uh, Verse 21, God speaking, I hate, I despise your feast days and I do not savor your sacred assemblies. What's that? God's saying, I don't like it when you go to church. I despise it. Crazy. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fattened peace offerings. Why? Why? Because you're all about end times, zealot stuff, and you don't have a relationship with me, right? That's what's going on. Uh, Rest of the verse. Read this out loud with me. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments, but let justice run down like water And righteousness like a mighty stream. Hey, instead of being all zealous for the rapture, why don't you be all zealous for repentance? Let justice be what rules your life. Let my righteousness enter into your life freely. Realize that I've what I what I really want, what I really value, and beware of overzealous eschatology. Uh, Yes, Bible prophecy is amazing. It shows us the sovereignty of Jesus. It shows us that Jesus will heal and restore the sinful world. But it does all these things so that Jesus might be our first love and that we would have nothing else before him. So don't be duped. The end is not yet, Jesus would say. Uh, But by the way, he said that 2,000 years ago. Uh, uh, the end is not yet and so uh, now Jesus is going to give the disciples a broad overview of the events that will lead up to the end of the age and uh, we'll, uh, we'll begin to start wrapping things up here on these verses uh, again uh, Jesus is saying don't be deceived the end is not yet and now he's going to give us an overview of what the end of the age will look like verse 7 he says for nation will rise against nation there's going to be national nations against nations or world wars, if you will. And kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines. And there will be pestilences. Heard of any? And there will be earthquakes in various places. All these are the what? Beginning of sorrows. And I want you to underline the words... All these, not some of these, but what? All these. All of these things are the beginning of sorrows. The word sorrows in the Greek is not translated, shouldn't be translated sorrows. It should be translated labor pains or birth pains. That was the word that Jesus used. All these are the beginning of labor pains. Labor pains of what? The end of the age. The labor pains of the end of the age. Not one of these things, oh, there's a war, it's the end of the world. No, 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 Jesus said there'll be wars. Oh, there's a pestilence, it's the end of the world. No, 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 Jesus said there'll be pestilences. Oh, there's earthquakes and famines. No, 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 Jesus said that would happen. But when you see all these things coming together like labor pains, then the end of the age is happening. And so uh, all these things are the beginning of the birth pangs that lead to the end of the age. Uh, Not one of these things. And so we have to ask ourselves, well, where are we? Are the frequency of these things happening? Are we moving towards this time? Well, for one, Israel became a nation again. That was a big prophecy that's not in this scripture here that we're covering today, but it was a major scripture that had to happen before the return of Jesus Christ. Israel had to be a nation. That happened. Israel is now a world power. Uh, that had to happen. Uh, now, let's take a look at these things. Is, is the frequency of these things happening? Is the frequency of these things I- increasing? Well, uh, let's look at some earthquake stats. Uh, here's a picture, by the way, of an earthquake in Japan. Uh, there's a guy, little corona mask on. Uh, look at that road. Uh, let's look at some earthquake stats. Are earthquakes increasing? Well, here's world at earthquake activity from 1973 to 2004. These are earthquakes with a 2.5 magnitude or greater. And this was done by the NEIC PDE World Earthquake Database, maintained by the U.S. Geological uh, uh, Survey. Uh, look at the increase in the last 25 years on earthquakes. From 5,000, under 5,000 a year, to now 25,000 a year. Uh, Is there an increase? Is it exponential? Is it like labor pains? Well, let's see if it's like labor pains. Are they getting worse? Put up that next slide for me. These are, uh, according to the US Geological Survey, these are worldly, deadly earthquakes with magnitudes between 6 and 8. So this is only measuring big earthquakes. Look at that exponential curve. And if you say, well, hey, 25 years isn't enough, well, this goes back for a whole century. Look at this exponential curve. Uh, Used to be under 5 for uh, an entire century, for 100 years, it was under 5 big earthquakes a year. And now we're up to 37, 38. And I wish I had the stats after 2008, between 2008 and 2011, because it would be off the charts. I did do the research. I just couldn't find a graph for it. And I don't want to make one. Um, So... uh, uh, Wow, we're seeing radical exponential growth in earthquakes. Labor pains are increasing. How about natural disasters? Let's look at some stats on that. Uh, what are the stats on natural disasters? Oh, my gosh, same exponential curve. Here is from the International Disaster Database in Brussels, uh, uh, Brussels Belgium. Uh, natural disasters from 1900 to 2007. Look at this exponential curve. Went from under 50 a, a year for 100 years, and now we're up to 550 natural disasters a year. Crazy. So natural disasters are incredible. How about this next one? Let's look at volcanoes. Volcanoes are natural disasters. This is from the Smithsonian Institute on Global Volcano- Volcanoes. Uh, look at this. Again, a, a, uh, this is... Uh, This is from year zero to year 2015. Look at this exponential growth in volcanic activity in the last few years. Crazy, crazy. Uh, Look at this next picture. Uh, This is a picture of a volcano in the Congo that happened on Tuesday this week. 61 earthquakes followed that volcanic eruption. They had to evacuate Uh, hundreds of thousands of people, 31 are dead, 40 are missing. That happened this week. Uh, Let's look at stats on wars. If uh, the stats on earthquakes and and all that other stuff is happening, here's the stats on wars. This is from Uppsala Research University in Sweden. Uh, This is armed conflicts by intensity from 1946 to 2019, and we see the same increase. Uh, Put on the next one, just in case you don't think that's a enough. Uh, This one is done by our World in Data, which is used in Harvard University, and Stanford University, and Berkeley, and the University of Cambridge, and Oxford. Uh, These are state, or in other words, national wars, government wars with governments, uh, that based between 1946 and 2016, with at least 25 deaths, and here we see an exponential growth in wars. Now it is true that the number of deaths in wars has decreased Because of uh, technology and other things that we're using right now. But the number of them has increased exponentially. Uh, What am I doing? What am I showing? I'm saying that all of, Jesus said, all of these things are the beginning of birth pains that lead to the end of the age. If you had one of these things happening, it wouldn't be. But when all of these things are happening, what do you know? The labor pains are starting for the end of the age. And so we want to pay attention. Uh, I could have put a chart up on pestilence, but I thought, probably not necessary. I think we all have had a mask full of it, haven't we? So uh, uh, a worldwide pandemic like the world has never seen uh, quite a pestilence. And again, one individually, no big deal. But all of these collectively, Jesus said, that means his return is near, even at the doors. And it would be wise for us to have our house in order. The end of the age is near. It would be wise to have our house in order. How do we get our house in order? It's really simple. Two simple things. Number one, we repent of sin. Some of us have become materialistic. Some of us have become incredibly lustful. Some of us have developed a drinking problem. Some of us have been uh, just caught up in uh, living for the wrong things. And it would be wise to repent of our sins and to say, Lord, you're right. This is wrong. I'm putting other things in front of you. Uh, Lord, I want to change. Please help me. Uh, Secondly, uh, repent of our sins. Secondly, just draw near to Jesus. Uh, Turn to him. Come to him. Say, Lord, help me. I I want you to be the Lord of my life. Fill me with your spirit. What does it mean to turn to Jesus? How do we do it? It's simple. We read our Bibles. We read our Bibles. We're going to close now, but I want you to read ahead in Matthew chapter 24. Do your homework for next week. Study these things. Let the Lord speak to you. Read Daniel chapter 9 this week. You're going to need it for next week. Jesus said, if you don't know Daniel chapter 9, Jesus said this, if you don't know Daniel chapter 9, read it and understand it. That's what he says in in Matthew 24. So do that. Read Daniel chapter 9. Uh, Men, If you're in the men's ministry, hey, go through the life of David. Use that study guide. Learn how to read your Bible. If you're not in men's ministry, get in men's ministry. Ladies, get in, uh, get in your Bibles, right? Read our Bibles. Uh, that's one way that we draw near to Jesus. Spend time in fellowship. Get involved in a uh, mission group or, or a women's group. Or, uh, get in, spend time in prayer. This is how we, how we draw near to Jesus. Um. We're done for today. I want you to hold on to these things. I don't want you to be scared, but I want you to have your eyes on Jesus, and I want you to be moving forward. Let me wet your appetite with where we're going next week. Look what Jesus says. Uh, he says, All of these things are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended... Are many offended today? Yes. We're living in this time. I've never seen such an, offended pe- such an easily offended people. Many will be offended, it says. Then they will betray one another. Are we seeing betrayal today? And many will hate one another. The end times are going to be marked by being offended and betraying and hating each other. Cruelty, difficult time. And many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. Have you ever seen more false propaganda? Have you ever seen more false prophets than what's happening right now? I have never seen it in my entire life. Uh, the amount of false propaganda, it, it's, it's, it's parallel to the time of Hitler, the amount of false propaganda that's, that's going out right now. Many false prophets, many false propaganda will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness abound, the love of many will grow cold. Do we see that happening? but he who endures to the end will be saved and the gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations and the end of the world will come. Jesus' words. We're going to unpack those verses in detail next week. Read ahead. Study ahead. Exciting times to be alive. Exciting times to be a servant of God. I can't think of a better time to be a servant of God except maybe at his first coming than right now than right now may you embrace the call of God upon your life may you walk in his amazing grace and mercy and forgiveness and may you let your light shine as a bright world excuse me as a bright light in a dark world amen you may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.